Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic today, as I've said, is sibling bereavement in childhood. Our guest is Dr. Betty Davies. Betty Davies is professor at the University of California, San Francisco. She has gained international recognition for her work in the grief and loss field through numerous publications, including two books, Fading Away, the Experience of Transition in Families with Terminal Illness, and Shadows in the Sun, Experiences of Sibling Bereavement in Childhood. She also was one of the founders of North America's first children's hospice in Vancouver, Canada. Betty is on the advisory board of SuperSibs, a nonprofit organization for siblings of children with cancer. She is one of the world's leading experts on bereavement and has won numerous honors and awards for her groundbreaking work. Welcome to the show, Betty. Thank you, Heidi. Hi, Betty. It's great to have you on today. Now, I wanted to ask you, how did you get into this field? Oh, well, (laughs) that goes back a long ways, actually. Um, I I guess the short version is that I'm uh, I'm a nurse, and I my whole life I had wanted to be a pediatric nurse, Um, and mostly I wanted to teach pediatric nursing. So when I got my first job, uh, I was on pediatrics. I thought I had achieved as much as I could possibly do. I was so happy. Well, throughout my nursing education before that point, we were taught that nursing was about three things. It was about, first of all, preventing illness so that people would stay healthy. If they couldn't stay healthy and got sick, then it was about trying to help them get better. And if they couldn't get better and were going to die, then it was about helping them to die as most as comfortably as they could and with dignity. And throughout my experiences as a nursing student with many patients who were seriously ill and who died, I realized that what we were learning in nursing school focused primarily on caring for the sick, secondarily on prevention, and none at all on caring for the dying. Mm-hmm. And I became very interested in why was that. Now, would this be around the, what year? Was this around the Kubler-Ross time? It or? was just after. It was in the early 70s, mm-hmm. and just around that time. And her book had just come out. And actually, it's funny you mention that because one of my first um, teaching positions was with a community college, and I had vowed that no student of mine would ever pass through my hands without having some um, discussion about caring for dying patients and about their students' own feelings about death and dying. And I had uh, talked about Kubler-Ross and her book and her teachings, and my students discovered, I had a group of 11 students, who discovered that she was coming to... um, At this time, I lived in Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada, Mm -hmm. and she was coming to a place called Medicine Hat, which was about five, six hundred miles away, uh, to put on a two-day conference. And my students decided that they would write a proposal for the director of our school outlining what a valuable contribution this would be for them, and therefore they should be allowed to miss school for three or four days to travel down and attend this two-day conference. Oh, and how right they were. And the director was so impressed with their initiative that she allowed us all to go. Ah, So that was my first encounter with Kubler-Ross, and I was moved by the woman and what she had to say. And from that point on, I developed a a very good friendship with her, and she became my mentor in in many ways. And one of the ways in which she did help me was I went to graduate school in Arizona, and while I was there, the, um, the following experience happened that made me aware of the experience of siblings. 
And until this time, I had cared for children who were very ill. And, of course, back in the early 70s, most children with cancer in particular died. Right. It's much different today than it was then. And so we had quite a few deaths on our, on our nursing units um, when children were sick with cancer. And through those experiences, I learned that children who are seriously ill are so much wiser than the adults who care for them. It's quite a change. I've noticed that with children that are terminally ill, they uh, are very ill. They're quite wise, aren't they? Oh, they're very wise. So I learned a lot from the children, and I felt so much for the parents because I could see the agony and the distress they were experiencing. Well, there I was working as a head nurse on a pediatric unit in Tucson, and one evening, late in the evening, we had a family being admitted to the hospital, and to our pediatric unit came three of the four children in this family. The fourth child, the oldest one, had died in the accident. And little Juan was, uh, they were a Mexican family from south of the border, <clears throat> and little Juan was eight years old, and he was the second oldest child, and his younger brother and sister were five and about 18 months. His mother had also been killed in the accident, and his father was in, ten- in intensive care. Mm-hmm. So this, these children were admitted, and little Juan, of course, wanted to know what was happening. And he could speak English. <clears throat> so I thought, how am I going to tell him? And just as I was thinking about that, the phone rang, and we learned that the local parish priest was coming to the hospital to be with the family. Mm-hmm. And knowing that the per- best person to give bad news to a child is someone they know rather than a complete stranger, right. we thought it was best to wait until Father Gonzalez arrived. So he came the next morning, <clears throat> and he was an elderly man who I often said was bent over with the weight of many sad stories, I think. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I asked him if I could help him in some way to talk to Juan, and he said no, this was something he felt he had to do himself. So we went down to the, to the, to the uh, child's room, and little Juan was sitting up in his bed. With one hand, uh, he had a broken collarbone, so one hand was in a sling. And his other little hand was holding his head on the overbed table. And he was looking so forlorn and, and just the saddest little boy. And when Father Gonzalez walked in, he kind of perked up because he recognized him. Father Gonzalez was very nervous. <clears throat> and he stood on the opposite side of the overbed table at a distance from little Juan. And he cleared his throat and he said, Juan, I have some bad news for you. In the accident, your mother was killed and your brother was killed, and your father's in intensive care, and we don't know if he's going to survive. So that means that now you, Juan, need to be the man of the family and the big brother for your brother and sister. Wow. And in the seconds it took to say that, that little boy went from being this weak and forlorn and sad little boy to sitting up straight with his little soldier shoulders straight back like a little soldier, taking on that responsibility that had been given to him. Mm-hmm. And my heart just ached for him. And I thought, <clears throat> what happens to these siblings? What happens when their brother or sister dies? And in this case, it was because his older brother had died that he was expected now to take on this responsibility. Mm. I thought, what happens? And so that set me off on a course of study that has, you know, continued till now. So I've talked to families, and particularly the children, um, from points in time immediately after the death right through <clears throat> to talking to elderly adults who in their childhood lost a sibling. 
So, Betty, uh, in looking at this, what have you found out about sibling bereavement? Mm-hmm. What What did you first move on to, and, and what have you found out? Right. <clears throat> well, my first project looked specifically at children where a sibling had died from cancer. And then since then, I've moved on to children um, um, who've died from a variety of causes, but always focusing on the sibling responses. Now, can I ask you a question coming into that? Because I know a lot of our audience is interested in this. Is there a difference in your mind between a sudden death and a long-term illness when you're looking at these as far as the sibling bereavement and ideas and patterns? And I, I think um, I think the responses are somewhat the same, but I think that they are greatly emphasized in cases of sudden death in the same way that it is for we as adults to lose someone unexpectedly and suddenly um, it's such a, it, it just tears one's soul apart so immediately. That happens also for siblings. Um, so that there, there, there are differences. However, that doesn't mean to say that if people have had a chance to sort of, quote, get used to the idea that the child might die at some point, that doesn't mean to say that um, the grief is less in any way. It, that there's so many other factors that come into play that the cause of death in itself is just one of those factors, and there's so many other things that we have to, to consider. And one of the ways that I look at those factors, <clears throat> and, and just to try to keep track of them all, because it's not the sort of thing that you can just list off, but I think about them um, in terms of three categories. There are those factors that affect um, the individual child, so individual characteristics of the child, the sibling, Mm -hmm. such as um, their gender and their age and um, their temperament, their past experience with death, their self-esteem, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And then characteristics of the situation itself, the death situation, and that's where the suddenness of the of the death would come into into play. Mm-hmm. The duration of the illness, if the child has been sick um, before, mm-hmm. and then environmental characteristics, which, in fact, I believe, and my research shows, turn out to be among the most important. And those have to do with things like how well the family is functioning, particularly the parents, and how the parents grieve greatly affects and impacts on how the children grieve. Um, uh, the shared life space between between the child who died and the child who's surviving. So if you <clears throat> think of two overlapping circles, and the, the greater the degree to which those circles overlap, the greater the shared life space if those circles represent the surviving child and the child who died. So how many contacts they had with them. Mm-hmm. So for, and it's not just the contacts. It has more to do with the, the amount of of um, life they've shared and the attachment, the closeness to the sibling. Now, what about where the siblings didn't get along? You know, they go through those periods. Is that a strong, a strong attachment? Or I think sometimes people think because the kids fight that they're not that attached. Right. <clears throat> it has not so much to do with attachment. It has to do with this idea of, of being very involved with one another on a daily basis. For example, <clears throat> if two children do not get along very well, Oftentimes, they occupy a lot of a lot of energy for each other. They spend a lot of time arguing, bickering, fighting, whatever. Um, so when that one child is gone, the other one m- misses <laughs> that interaction that they had. That's interesting. So even if it was negative, they still miss that. Yes, and where this 
moving to adults for a minute, where this becomes very clear, came very clear to me, was well, I used to give <clears throat> workshops on coping with loss. And I remember often, these were for adults, and I remember oftentimes there would be um, spouses there who would say things like, you know, my husband was, my husband and I had such a good relationship. I'm just so distressed over it. But my neighbor, she and her husband fought all the time. I can't understand why she thinks she's as badly off as I am. <laughs> and this shared life space concept explains it to me because even when spouses don't get along and they argue all the time and they bicker with one another all the time, when one of those spouses is no longer there, the surviving spouse misses that interaction, even though it was negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it leaves a big empty space in, in, in their life. Now, getting back to siblings for a minute, the other thing then that comes into play when siblings do have a, have a not such a good interaction or a good relationship is that when the one child dies, then the surviving sibling can often feel guilt or remorse for the previous interactions that they had. Yeah, so and oftentimes they have them that day, especially if it's a sudden death. Exactly. So and and what, about the, uh, how, what about when um, the family, say it is a long-term illness in the family, uh, sometimes we know kids are saying uh, there's so much time spent with that other child. Well, yeah, that also plays a role because the surviving child often feels resentful, jealous of the time that the parents have to spend with the surviving child. I just talked to a family recently where the family was getting ready, the father was recounting a story where the family was getting ready to go to church on Easter Sunday. It was a very special Sunday because the ill child was finally well enough to be up and about. So all the children had new clothes and they were going off to Easter Sunday. When the ill child looked at herself in the mirror, she was only about eight or nine years old, when she looked at herself in the mirror in her brand-new outfit, she burst into tears because she could see that the clothes that they had bought no longer fit her and that her spine was had curved. Mm-hmm. And she felt just so self-conscious for, for the first time, really. And so the family stayed home. <laughs> so that impact on the siblings then who were just as excited about their new clothes and going to church for the first time in a long time lost that experience. Right, and Heidi talks about that a lot with holidays and things, <clears throat> don't you, Heidi? Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the kids still feel, you know, want to have positive experiences in their family, even if there's a death or an illness, mm-hmm. which is understandable. They want to lead, you know, as normal a childhood as they can. Exactly. Now, Betty, what do you tell families? I know we've got families out there that are listening who know exactly what you're talking about. Their, their kids did, their kids fought or whatever and they've just had a child die. What, or they've, or they've had to take care of a, a child over the long term. What would you say to them? What should they do with their other kids? And let's say that the kids are all under 18. You know, they're at home. <clears throat> right. Well, um, just before I answer that question, can I just tell you a little bit more about the responses of children? Um, okay. Because I think it might it would help me um, explain what I would what the advice okay. I would and, give. Okay, and we'll probably do this with this segment, and then when we get into the next segment, we'll let you give some interventions for me. Yeah, okay. okay. <clears throat> so what I have found from talking to siblings themselves is that their responses can fall into four categories, and these are in the words of the children themselves. One is, I hurt inside. Mm -hmm. That is, they feel sad, they're irritable, they're angry sometimes, they have tummy aches, their head hurts. They have all the what we consider the normal 
um, or typical symptoms of grief, which are oftentimes, like you said, physical symptoms. Exactly, physical symptoms, not being able to sleep, eating too much, not eating enough. Um, it really it really stems from their vulnerability of, of um, just being human because it's the human response to, to grief. And then the other category is I don't understand. And this is where children don't know what's happening. Sometimes if they're young, they don't have the capacity to understand. Um, they don't understand what's happening with their sick children, with their sick sibling, or what death is about, or where their brother or sister has gone, and what all this means. The second or the third one is I don't belong. And this one comes about when normal day-to-day activities are interrupted, particularly not only during the illness but at the time of death. They're overwhelmed by a flurry of activity, and they often don't know what to do. They want to help in some way, but they just don't know what to do. And oftentimes this is where people will find ways to exclude the children mm-hmm. out of a need or the desire to protect them. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, that just makes it worse for the children because it emphasizes the fact that they just, they just don't belong anymore. Mm-hmm. And the fourth one <clears throat> um, is, I think, the, the most um, poignant one. And this is the one where children say they feel like they're not enough. Mm-hmm. It results from not having their first three responses tended to, not being comforted when they hurt, not having things explained to them, and not being included. And oftentimes they will end up feeling as if, I'm not enough. I'm not enough to make Mommy happy again. I'm not enough to make Daddy love me as much as he loved Johnny, my brother who died. Or they often end up thinking, I should have been the one who died. I wasn't as smart as Johnny, and I didn't do as well in sports. I should have been the one who died. Nobody really liked me as much as him anyway. So those kinds of feelings that children have make them feel as if they're just not enough anymore. And I think if um, what I have done in my work is to think of these four responses that I've learned about from studying children, you know, for so long, and have identified specific things that we can do in response to each of them that might help parents help their children. If you have a child, um, and would they say, "I heard inside," or would you would you just um, no. know that they do? And how? And for our audience, you've got a child who's hurting, obviously a sibling who's hurting. What is your suggestion to this to our audience? For <clears throat> right, children themselves don't say, "I heard inside." Necessarily, they'll say, "I'm sad," or "I'm." Oftentimes, the thing with children is they don't often identify how they're feeling. They don't put words to it in the same way that adults often try to do. So that's why we have to be very sensitive to a child's behavior and to see if they're withdrawn, if they're more aggressive, if they're irritable, if they look sad, if they're having trouble sleeping or eating or, you know, look for things that are different. And just the little faces. Uh, Yes, exactly. Or if they say they don't feel well. Uh Uh-huh, exactly. They're lonely. Maybe they want to stay connected with you. They don't want you to leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oftentimes they're anxious and they're they're more clinging, particularly younger children. And I understand some children can uh, really do better in schoolwork. Well, yes. Sometimes children do very well in school, and sometimes sometimes that's good, but we also have to be aware that that's that may have another edge to it, like most things in life. There's more than one side to the story. So they and, might be pushing it. Well, sometimes they do really well in school because they're trying to protect their parents from having another child who has a problem, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not, not, not a bad thing necessarily. 
when it when it has an edge to it is when their other sibling was very good in school and they're trying very hard to be like that sibling so that their motivation is to be like the other sibling in ways that discounts what they themselves are. Mm-hmm. And that might um, be something about I'm not enough to your that's fourth exactly, point. Yes, that's how they're, they're all related together. So oftentimes when children feel as if they're not enough, what they do is try to make up in some way for the deficits they perceive they have. They are looking for the attention that they, they just don't feel that they're worthy of. And are they also trying to fill the void of the sibling that died and try to replace some of those kind of things or not? <clears throat> uh, replace them with? Well, well, you know how when a sibling dies, there's a big part of the, fa- the family's got a big hole in it in a sense, and the siblings kind of come in and try to replace some of those family roles. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> it's, sometimes they do, and sometimes parents will impose that on children. Like in my first example of little Juan, his parish priest imposed that on him, and he took on that responsibility. That he had to be the man of the family. That he had to be the man of the family, and he now had to be the big brother for his younger brother and sister. And it's interesting because even today it's amazing how often we as brief siblings get the messages from society that we need to be strong for our parents because they've been through so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And oftentimes siblings will say to me, um, mostly what people ask me, they'll say, is how's your mom doing? Right. Sometimes right. they say, how's your mom and dad doing? But nobody ever asks how I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And and that that is so true. Now, one of the things I really want to emphasize for parents is that This is really hard for parents. It's very difficult for parents to have a child who's ill and who dies or a child who dies suddenly. No matter how it happens, it's incredibly hard for parents. Mm -hmm. I have not yet met in all of my work a parent who was not concerned about their other children. They are concerned about their other children. It's just that sometimes they don't know what to do, what to say, or they don't have the energy to do it. The other thing is, as I recall, when my son died and my daughter was 14, there's nothing you can You hate to see your kids hurt that much. Right. It, it's, a, it's a terrible thing, and, but, you know, you, you can't stay up all night with them every night. And, no. You know, and they're crying at night. You don't want them to cry. You don't want them to do this. And, uh, but, you know, you've only got so much left yourself. Right. And, and one, of the, one, one of the things about that is grief does hurt. And one of the ways people cope with their grief is to cry. So our goal isn't to stop the crying at night, but to let the children know it's okay to cry. And what, what I have to tell you about one of the experiences I had with one family who told me that they were a very um, loving, caring, cohesive family. And so when I was talking with them and I asked them about crying, how did they manage crying in their family? The father cleared his throat and sat up straight, and he said, well, you know, we have a rule about crying in our family, and that rule is you, you don't cry. And I was, I was dumbfounded because that seemed totally contradictory to my perception of this family. But he said, also, he said, you don't cry alone. Oh. <laughs> and so his message was, it, you, we know it, you have to cry, mm-hmm. but, and it's okay if you want to cry by yourself, but always know that there's someone who will cry with you or sit with you while you're crying. Mm-hmm. So the message there is the sharing of children with their, uh, of, between children and parents of how they're feeling. 
But let me ask you a question to our audience out there. Would you want to tell a child that you don't cry alone? Uh, no. That might be that family's tradition, but. Yeah, right. I, no, my point there is that the, 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 is the sharing. Right. That's emphasized. Right. And, exactly. and that you want to keep communication open. It gets more, it gets more difficult with teens though, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and so the other thing that one can do with teens, because the last person teens talk to usually is their parents. Right. A lot of teens I have found that I've interviewed actually talk to the parents of their friends. They they turn out to be good listening blogs. <laughs> okay. So one of the things I recommend to families um, is to identify an adult in the child's life to whom the child feels close, who has a good relationship. It can be an aunt, an uncle, it can be the next door neighbor, it can be the mother of a best friend, a scout leader, a pastor, whoever. Ask that person directly and specifically if they would be willing to help with family in this way. Would you be willing to spend some time with Johnny, the surviving child, every week for half an hour? Mm -hmm. Would you be willing to make sure that you sit with Johnny at the funeral and explain to him what's happening if he has a question? Someone that the child trusts and can go to knowing that that person will have time to listen and be with them. I like that because usually the parents, you know, are going through so much of their own grief that that the children really experience a double loss. That's exactly true. And most people who are close to the family, whether they be relatives or friends, are so eager to help, but they don't know how to help either. So giving them a specific task, like the responsibility in a way, for just spending some quality time with the sibling will help. Now, if it's a family that has more than one sibling, you need one of those people for each of those children. That's a great idea, and I think that comes into your second point, which is I don't understand, which is a great uh, way to help them. I wanted to get, before you, uh, you're going to leave us during this, after this segment, so I wanted to get to your third point, which is I don't belong. Right. <clears throat> now, oftentimes children end up feeling as if they don't belong simply because they haven't been involved or included, and we have to try to include the children to the level that they're able so sometimes, as I mentioned before, the natural inclination is to send children away to protect them from what's happening, from the sadness in a way. Mm-hmm. How much better to include the children and to teach them how to deal with the sadness. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when a child, um, uh, when a funeral is being planned, to ask the siblings, is there anything that you would like to do for, you know, during the funeral? Would you like to sing a song or write a poem? Or would you like to just be there and sit quietly? You know, Betty, I'm thinking because of our audience, most of them have had children die already, that you could have a memorial, say, in a year or six months or whatever, or during their birthday or whatever, you could include them in some kind of a ceremony then. Exactly. And maybe they could even help decide what you wanted, how they wanted it to go, what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. One of the other things that I find helpful that parents have told me they find helpful is, for example, any parents in your audience today might be able to say to their child, you know, I listened to a radio program this morning, and it was about what happens when um, a a brother or sister dies and what it's like for the other brothers and sisters. We haven't had much chance to talk about that and, and how it's been for you. Why, why don't we, why don't we do that? <laughs> it provides an opening for parents 
Mm-hmm. You, you know, rather than just to sit down and say, okay, so tell me how it's been for you. Kids kind of go, what? What do you want to know for? I mean, you know. They, right. Why is this coming up now? Why is this I, coming I love up that. now? I love yeah. that. So it, it just yeah. presents it in context, and it, and it allows the child to say, oh, well, no, no, thanks, I'm fine, which in itself might tell you something. <laughs> and they, they also might be able to, at this, this point, say to them something like, um, you know, we had to take care of Jane for a long time. How how was that for you? Or it was a sudden death, and I and I hear it's you know how how was that to suddenly hear? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know that kind of thing. Right. So, and to also open it up a little bit to say, I heard on the radio that it, it's really hard for many brothers and sisters because not many people pay attention to them. Um, is how is that for you? So that it it's kind of neutralizes it a little bit. Yeah, it, it really it, normalizes it. I like yes. that, Betty. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> I just want to share one other piece of information that I think is very important to this business about um, a child not feeling as if he's enough. And this often comes about from favoritism shown one child over another. And I, this is my best example of this. When I interview families, I often and prefer to go to their home. In some homes, families will tell me about the child who died, and then they will show me a picture of the child, and they'll point on the wall and they'll say, that's Johnny, that's our child who died. In other families, they'll point to the picture of Johnny, but Johnny's picture will not be the only one on the wall. They will say, these are our children. Johnny is the one on the left, he's the one who died. Mary is below him, and Peter is the one on the right. Just having um, mementos of the deceased child around can make the other children feel as if they're not special enough, as if as the was the child who died. So one of the most important and simplest things that parents can do is to make sure that pictures of all of their children are around, that all of the children's awards, if there are any, or ribbons in school, or pictures they draw in school are posted on the fridge, not just those mementos of the child who died. Uh, Betty, that is so great. And it's time for us to clo- um, to say goodbye to you and, and go to break. And I think that's just a great thing to end on, don't you, Heidi? Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity very much. It's thank been you, great Betty. to have you on the show. And we're going to um, try to put, we will, put the children's responses, your four points. And, and on, Betty's books are in our bookstore. Yeah, and the books are in the bookstore, and we'll put and that. I, I'm sure your points are all in your book, right? Uh, they are. <laughs> Great. And which one, uh, for those four points, would they look at? Which book would they get? It would be The Shadows in the Sun, The Experience of Sibling Bereavement in Childhood. Great. So it's The Shadows in the Sun, and you can get those off our website, and I'm sure you can also get them on Amazon, right, Betty? Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been very helpful. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.